The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. I spend a lot of time here in the parliamentary buildings, leaning back on a soft seat in the Beehive Theatre, listening to politicians telling me things I probably already know and really was expecting. So it's always nice to be surprised. And on March the 14th, the Prime Minister turned up at the lectern to announce what we all knew was coming, which was fuel tax cuts to help those people struggling with $3 a litre petrol. And that was a slightly depressing political move. It would mean that all the incentives to try to get people out of their cars and into buses and trains would be diluted somewhat. The one real pain point for the planet out of the Ukraine war has been the watering down of various moves to try to uh, reduce our carbon emissions. So this really was politics as usual. But in this kabuki theatre of a place where politicians like to perform, we got a surprise. Have a listen to the surprise. Now, more than ever, is the time to make our transition towards more sustainable transport options and greater energy security. But this is not a transition we can make in a week or a month. As we've seen with the most recent jump in prices at the pump over the weekend, the situation has quickly become acute and extra short-term measures are needed. On that basis, Cabinet has decided today to do what we can to alleviate the increases at the pump by reducing the fuel excise duty by 25 cents a litre and the road user charges by the same amount for a period of three months. This means a potential saving of between $11.50 and $17.25 per tank of fuel. Cabinet has made the decision that in addition, all public transport fares will be half price for the next three months. We hope this ensures that where the option of shifting how we travel is available, this makes it more affordable to take that public transport option up. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. Half price public transport at the same time as the fuel tax cut. What a brilliant double whammy. A policy move which is let's face it, popular politically for the broad swathe of voters, but at the same time, give something to those people who wouldn't necessarily benefit from that policy and does it in a way that engineers a move to a more just transition. This week on When the Facts Change, we want to have a look at the economics of cut price public transport, and even more than that, free public transport. We've obviously got the natural experiment of this half-price public transport thing from March of this year. Now it's going to go right through until the end of January. And we've already seen a 20-30% increase in the usage of buses and trains, particularly in Auckland. And that's a great thing because it moves people out of their cars and double cab utes and onto buses and trains, begins that process of mode shift. And it does something else as well. It makes a real contribution to those people who are struggling with the need for higher fossil fuel prices to engineer our shift to net zero. This group, 
have already struggled with our first big transition as an economy in the late 80s, early 90s, when we ditched our manufacturing sector and moved to, frankly, lower wage and less secure services jobs. This time around, the risk is that those people on low incomes who spend a lot of their money on petrol and diesel getting to and from work, who don't have options with public transport, start to have a few more options and actually get some of the benefits of cheaper uh, transport that we're going to see with the move to carbon zero. This week on When the Facts Change, we want to have a look at the economics of free, the economics of free public transport, how it creates a couple of positive feedback loops, a type of perpetual motion machine, which means that we surge an extra demand into the system for buses and trains, and that creates a positive feedback loop where you get more buses and trains, more frequent buses and trains, more reliable buses and trains, and also you start to reduce the subsidy per fare that you see currently. And there's some real surprises when we have a look at the economics of free public transport. That's this week on When the Facts Change. To do that, I had a chat to Jen MacArthur, an associate professor at University College London, who's spent a lot of time looking at the different trials of free public transport around the world, how effective they were, and what were the quirks and features that might be able to apply to Auckland? Because, of course, we're having this debate about free public transport, not just in Auckland. This movement is spreading around the country and into places you wouldn't expect. And so we're now in the middle of a natural experiment where we get to see whether a shift to free public transport is a major part of our move to a just transition. That's this week on When the Facts Change. Well, kia ora, and welcome to When the Facts Change to Associate Professor Jen MacArthur, who's talking to us from the University College London, or maybe London, and I was really interested and sort of thrilled to see your report, Jen, about the issue of subsidised public transport in the light of this halving of public transport costs in New Zealand. It sort of accidentally happened. Could you tell us a bit more about the research you've done and what you were trying to find out? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you. And to first just to say thank you for having me on, on the podcast. I'm really uh, excited to talk about it. Also really excited uh, that this, this debate is taking place uh, for, for Tamaki Makoto. Uh, so I, I'm an academic researcher in my uh, sort of day job. I study, uh, I've done a lot of research on tra transport systems in different cities around the world. Uh, I grew up uh, in New Zealand. I, I lived in Auckland for uh, five to six years before I, sh I shifted overseas when I, I came to do my PhD. Um, and I guess first just to say, I, I you know, some of the complaints or the, the feelings of what it's like to live in Auckland and, and rely on the bus or to, to drive everywhere, I, 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 that does definitely resonate with me. Although my experience in recent years has been looking at transport systems and how they're run, how they're funded, how they're financed in a lot of different context, uh, contexts internationally. Um, this particular piece of research came up um, and huge credit to Professor Collins and the politicians who have mobilised this debate and are really, you know, looking for bold and, and uh, radical policies or new ways of thinking about how we travel and how that might change. Uh, this uh, piece of work, which is uh, supported or funded by First Union and the Public Service Association, was really around, I guess, sort of like fleshing out, like if 
if we were to go fare free and to consider this option, what does that actually mean for the transport system? Um, and when I, I came to it and had the early discussions as a researcher and, and doing a lot of work internationally, I knew that a lot of other cities had experimented with this over recent decades. And, and particularly at the moment, it's quite prominent. It's sort of like very current in the debates in the context of the sort of post-COVID recovery and the climate change goals that a lot of cities are, are grappling with. Um, and so when I came to it, my thinking was, okay, it's really exciting. This debate is happening in New Zealand. I know a lot of other cities are, you know, looking at similar policies and uh, I'm confident that there will be a huge amount of learning, like lessons that can be taken from the way that other cities have done it. That doesn't mean that we sort of do a carbon copy, you know, pick up what happened in Boston or in Kansas City and drop it in New Zealand. You need to be very kind of careful about how we interpret things. Um, but also knowing that something like going fair free raises a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainties over how would that change behavior? How would that change the way the system operated? How would that affect not only the people who are riding the bus, but the people who, you know, absolutely need to drive? Like, where do they fit into the, the change that this might affect? Um, and so that was why I went out and, uh, you reached out to a lot of these cities and spoke to uh, local officials, to some of the um, sort of political representatives and um, working for different agencies, um, to sort of advocates and campaigners, everyone I could find who was in some way involved in the coming up with the idea of going fair free and then the actual implementation to see whether it was going fully fair free or putting in place an experiment or a pilot to understand what did, what they learned from that. And my hope was that in doing that research and um, bringing that in the, in the report, which really looks at what ha what's happened in other cities, but contextualizes that and say, okay, well, what's the situation? Um, in, in New Zealand, what is the potential for change? What is the impact on how we travel, on the environment, on our kind of social opportunities, on the way the economy works? And to try and bring those lessons and really contextualize them in the hope that I could support the debate to, to continue, but give it a lot of like insight and evidence, primarily because again, the question of going fair free, uh, does raise a lot of questions and not all of them can be answered, but we can get a huge amount of insight, um, from, from looking at other, uh, other places. Um, and so that was, that was how, how the report came together. Um, and, and again, um, the debate that I see unfolding. In New Zealand are really important. And, and I think on the one hand, and I mentioned in an op-ed that, that I wrote, you know, transport funding is sort of famously dry. Um, it's the last thing, trust me, it's the last thing, you know, you should, you should bring up at a party if you want to make interesting conversation. But it's, it's so interesting that actually when this comes up, the political debates about it are really contentious because it touches on things that we people do feel really strongly about in terms of how can I travel? What's my independence and ability to get around? What do, what's sort of my right to travel in a certain way? And what should other people, you know, what's due to other people. Um, and so actually, I think like bringing that debate up and having these conversations, in some ways, it's it's difficult, or we discover that not everyone's on the same page. But it is really important to sort of, I guess, bring to light and get a better understanding of how, again, the way we travel and the transport infrastructures that exist, and then in turn, obviously, how they're funded and how they're financed is is really important. And, and you know, in some ways, it does cut to something which, which is very political in the sense that it affects our daily experience. And again, i um, and some of the discussions we had around uh, the, the uh, launch of the report, you know, we talked about how, you know, we often talk about buses or trains or, you know, we talk about them in very technical terms. But for the vast majority of people, if you're not a transport planner or if you're not in that world of obsessing over the details, transport is just hours and hours of your time. And it's either something that's easy or convenient or affordable, or if it's not, it's hours of your time that reduces your quality of life. If you're stuck in congestion or you're frustrated or you're frustrated that, you know, the, the, the bus times or the train times are unreliable, or if you see it taking a huge amount out of your bank balance, uh, if 
every month. That has a huge impact on you in that way. And so I think that's why, again, the debates are very important, um, but also understanding the impact of all these sort of technical things around transport at that point of like, but how do people live and how does it shape what it means to live uh, in Auckland and the opportunities that you have to, to travel around? Um, I could say a lot more, but I, I think I can I can stop there. But that's really sort of some of like where the report came from, but also some of the thinking around it. I really did try to not only look at the technical aspect of, you know, efficiency and funding and the financing, but also touch on those important issues of what does this mean for you know, how we see transport and how that relates to your sense of uh, your independence, your ability to access things and the opportunity that you have if, if you live in Auckland. What did you learn from the trials on this that have been done elsewhere? And, you know, what are the quirks and features which mean that some things can be lifted and applied or at least learned and other things can be ignored? So uh, a lot was learned from the, the trials, but I'm going to pick out a couple of things that I guess were, some of them were sort of unexpected or just really important, sort of sh like stuck out as things that we thought, okay, this could be a really important learning point. And again, as I said before, being careful about how you sort of transfer from one city to the next, things that did stick out. Um, I think the first was that across different cities, going fare-free uh, showed that it's a, it's a policy that can give you a big, like in the short term, quite a big increase in ridership. And so if you can say, okay, I've got my transport budget and I'm deciding between spending on, you know, upgrades and extending the services and, uh, you know, improving the, the integrated ticketing system or improving the rolling stock. There's a number of things you can spend money on. And all of those things to differing extents will have an impact on people's response and their need to, uh, their desire to take the bus or the train. Um, but what's important about uh, going fare free is that that can give you like a, a, quite a stark sort of uptick uh, in ridership. Um, so just to give some of the figures, and again, for context, the COVID-19 in a lot of cities has sort of disrupted travel patterns. And so that's in some cities it made it hard to get a clear um, picture of what went on. Um, but Boston was a really good example where they went fare free just on one bus route. They chose it very carefully. Um, so it was a bus route that linked a lot of low income areas to the central city um, and was a key sort of commuting route and had a lot of uh, businesses along the way. Um, but just on that one route, so they made that fare free as their, their pilot or to experiment with the policy, but they didn't change any of the other routes. You still had to pay for them, but they saw 23% ridership growth in a year. And this is a year that you're coming out of COVID-19. Um, and that 23%, that's a, a relative ridership. So the, the rest of the city, you know, sort of went up by a certain a certain amount because they were coming out of lockdown and that was the relative increase on that route compared to all the other routes across the city. And how many how many people did it take out of their cars and put into buses and make it easier for the car drivers to get around Boston? I think it's it's to the tune of fifteen or fifteen percent were new to the route. So that was the number of people that it attracted from from other places. Um, so that was that was really significant. Um, and another thing too, like a, one of the, you know, the, the kind of questions that come, sometimes comes up with going fare free is that, you know, will it really attract people out of their cars or will it, you know, will we just get all these people who were walking or cycling and find that they have shifted over to the, to the free buses? There's sort of a, a backstory behind that, but it's to, to put it concisely, um, that idea comes largely from a city called Tallinn, which is one of the case studies at the capital of Estonia. And what they did is that they introduced fare free uh, public transport for all of the public transport, but it was only for residents and it was only in the central area of the city. So to give a sort of proxy for Auckland, it was the equivalent of saying, okay, we're going to make the central isthmus fare free. But if you're traveling from outside, 
inside the isthmus, you're going to have to pay, or if you need to cross it, you, you're going to have to pay. So it doesn't really count. Um, so as a result, the area of the fair free zone was quite small. And so most of the trips that could reasonably actually like feasibly go from to use the fair free public transport, they were trips that were the sort of like walking or cycling distance. Um, and so I think that's that sort of step came out with it without the sort of context saying, but there's a really specific reason why they saw such a big shift from walking and cycling as opposed to other things, because the people who might have liked to shift from other modes didn't actually have access to, to going fair free. I'm so sorry. So that's that's sort of one point on the like where where does the mode shift come from? And um, but Boston again definitely showed that you can attract people to your to uh, public transport and um, by doing this. And um, so that was one thing. Um, the second thing I, I wanted to, which again was a really important learning, was that uh, like in the context of some of the debates around this, say, look, it's why on earth would you give free public transport to someone who's who's wealthy already? Like they can pay for it. Why don't just let them pay for it and use targeted concessions? I mean, I absolutely understand the logic behind that, but when it comes to the practicalities of how your how your transport system actually runs, um, Kansas City showed a really salient lesson here where they said, look, we actually agreed with that that premise to start with. We didn't want to go fully fare free. We thought we're just going to introduce all the right targeted concessions to make sure people who are low income, um, who are students, who are older, for whatever reason, if people need uh, low affairs, we're going to do that. But they found that after they introduced all those lower fares, the contribution of the amount, like the amount of revenue that was coming from fares, that was making such a, like it had erode, been eroded so much because they, they created all these concessionary fares. And it got to the point where they said, actually, can we just check like how much money are we raising in terms of revenue from fares and how much of that goes into operating the ticketing system, the fare enforcement, the, you know, the barriers, all the things that come with it. And when they put that together, they said, we think this would just be much much simpler if we just made it fare free, um, which in turn, and this is from Kansas City, but also other cities, when you make it fare free in terms of the efficiency of the system and um, you know, simple things like the fact that you don't have to queue and wait for everyone to, to tap on to get onto the bus, everyone just gets on and off, it increases the, the reliability, the travel times, taking all of that into account, they said, we probably, if we'd sort of realized this at the start, we should have just gone fare free from the start rather than take the sort of, you know, the sort of steep learning curve of thinking that concessions are the right way to go um, and then coming back to going fare free. I'm channeling my Kosking here, but <laughs> but w why should my taxes go to pay for someone else to to um, get transported to work or um, a concert or whatever when I have to pay for my car and my fuel and probably a parking ticket as well? That doesn't seem fair to me. Yeah, and so I understand those points. And on the one hand, you know, I'm really glad that people have an understanding of like all the, you know, how things are funded or like wh where their money is going. Um, I think the thing I would say is that uh, like some of these arguments or some of these difficulties we have for people saying like, why do why do bus riders get or the train riders why do they get a subsidy? And when I we had the launch a couple of weeks ago, some of the questions I got back were people saying, okay, so if the government's going to pay for their bus, like, can it pay for my fuel and my car registration because I have to bear that cost? Um, and I think what that does is that sort of pits us all against each other as if there's the bus rider and the person taking the train and the cyclist and the person in their car and it's all everyone's kind of out for themselves and if one person gets a handout then you know that's not fair because what about the rest of us we need to get around and I do absolutely understand that a lot of people for, for a large number of reasons sometimes it's just not viable to take public transport if you need to travel for your you know take a car for your work and I understand that people can feel like you know there's an idea that like yeah let's get everyone out of their cars that doesn't work for everyone but I What's really important and what really came out of this research is that going fair free is not something that's just a handout to 
to people riding the bus or the train is actually something that dramatically improves the efficiency of the overall transport system. Um, so what that means is that like, sure, not everyone can stop driving. Um, and that's, and actually the cities that I spoke to, they said, and that's not at all our issue. We're not trying to sort of, you know, scare people out of their cars or to, to force them out. What we're trying to say is for the people who can shift to public transport, um, we're trying to make that as easy as possible for them. Um, and that's what going fare free does. So again, if you're the person who you think I need to drive, you know, every day because I have a job, I do shift work for any number of reasons that make it difficult to, to take public transport, you actually benefit hugely from going fare free. And that's why I would say it's actually worth, you're better off saying, yeah, I'm happy for my, my money to go towards that because the more cars that can come off the road for those people who are able to shift to taking the bus or the train, that will make the road clearer, clearer for you. And I think one of the sort of like, it's a pity that we, that these debates get quite sort of, again, sort of, we sort of split out by modes and all act as if it's like, you know, as if it's um, a zero sum game, a, a zero sum game. Exactly. Because actually the transport system, is like a collective system and the more efficiently we can use that space. And one of the best things we can do to use space efficiently is to take the people who don't actually need to take a car and to have them taking the bus or the train or be able to, to walk and cycle instead. That's good for everyone. So I would really encourage you, like, don't feel like it's a handout and you're sort of losing out. If you're a driver, actually, this is, this could, you know, really improve your, your quality of life, even if you're not the one taking the, taking the free fares. And, you know, again, channeling Mike Hosking, um, does this mean if everyone's getting out of their cars into their buses, because I've increased the subsidy for them, that now I can drive my Ferrari down the motorway even faster with fewer people around me, and I don't have to pay another big chunk of tax somewhere down the line for another motorway when the motorway I'm on fills up? Definitely, yeah. And I think that's something that doesn't get or what doesn't get sort of enough coverage is that the approach of saying we don't really want to subsidise public transport, so we're going to essentially keep a bit of a cap on the way that's used because it's unaffordable for some people and for other people it's just like it's basically more expensive than driving. What that does, if you if you say, okay, you know, it's either you think it's not likely or it's not feasible or for whatever reason, public transport is not going to increase. That forces us back into the system again, extremely spatially inefficient and creates, like as people who live in Auckland know, a highly congestible transport network when you're all jumping out there in your cars trying to trying to um to drive to get to work. Again, by shifting that, it makes the whole system work much more uh, much more efficiently, and it's definitely something that. Again, as you said, if you want to drive down the motorway, then that's going to, to make this, the, uh, the roads and the streets a lot clearer for you. It's not going to make you worse off. Um, and I think just one more thing to say about that is, again, like some of the, the questions about going fair free say, oh, I'm not comfortable. You know, there's this massive subsidy, like it's sort of uh, committing to public transport will take us down this path of like it's all sort of, you know, like big government, big spending. I guess, I mean, you know, depending on your politics, people have different views on that. But I guess I want to stress, like, if you are worried about kind of getting getting locked into a system that requires massive government spending and intervention just to keep it going, then going down the path of relying on everyone traveling by car and then needing to build ever increasing like road capacity to keep that up. Economically, financially, that's not an efficient way to run your transport system in a, in a city. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. 
Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Is there an element here of a a type of perpetual motion machine? The economics of free sort of pay for itself or at least reduce the costs where, for example, and I know there's some chickens and eggs here, but if you have fares free or very, very low cost fares, a lot more people use the bus, it's full up. And then there's the potential, if you get a bit more money, uh, to have more buses on the route there, so that the route is more reliable and that there's a, a type of fi- positive feedback loop here with more usage of the buses, more frequent buses, more reliable buses. Uh, people, More people are likely to get out of their cars knowing that they can rely on it. And away you go, creating this perpetual motion feedback loop, which actually means, you know, you get a lot more people out of the cars and you start to get some real scale to the carbon emissions reductions and the potential new heavy capital costs of building new motorways and or railways. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really important. And that's like what the potential long-term impacts. I've talked about the sort of potential short-term sort of uptick in ridership that you can see if you go fare free, but in the long-term, it can definitely put your system onto a kind of trajectory where that you're getting to say more people use it, um, it becomes more reliable, it becomes more efficient. Um, you know, like a common uh, kind of issue or debate in a lot of places is people saying, you know, it's a little bit maybe sort of chicken and egg, people saying we need the bus routes or we need the, the rail services, but there's no ridership. So how can we, you know, as seen as like an inefficient use of public money, like how can we spend, you know, money on these things and then sort of hope that people might turn up? But if you go fare free, you immediately begin to stimulate that increase in ridership, which then makes it much easier for you to justify um, the continued improvements. And I think just one more thing on that, I think I mentioned it in the report, but in Auckland, like something that that I think is really important um, to inform these debates is that the city since the early 2000s has seen a really substantial increase in the use of the public transport system, um, so the rail and the buses. Um, and that's happened because there's been a big improvement in the quality of the services. A lot of money has been invested in, you know, making the buses more frequent, more reliable, expanding the rail services, introducing integrated ticketing systems, etc, etc. You know, so when you 
actually look at that, you think actually Auckland's on this trajectory already where it shows if you invest in making the services better and making them more accessible, people do respond to that. And I get that they might not be everyone in the city, but the more people, again, if they're in a situation where they can take public transport um, and, you know, and it's a way to reduce their transport costs, that's a really, a really good thing. And so I guess the way I see going fare free, again, I know that people have frustrations so that it can feel like, you know, this is really difficult. How will we ever get to a point where we've got amazing public transport? But I guess what I would say back to that is like, you're actually already on that trajectory. Like, look at what's happened between the early 2000s and now. There has been a huge improvement. It's never, in no city is that perfect or, you know, all the decisions along the way perfect, but it does show that things, things could change. Um, and so going fair free could again like catalyze that further. And, and, you know, I think it's important to see that like the, there are policies like this, which are available, which can like, they can give you hope that things could be quite different, but you just need to sort of trust that like that's a trajectory, like each city. And I've seen this happen in so many different cities, like has to, you know, make a commitment and have things improve. And, and I think there's a really important aspect of that is that as things are improving and particularly if you can make them fair free for the individual user who's thinking, I just, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get by. I need to get to university. I need to get to work. I'm thinking about how I can, you know, get, get to the hospital or, you know, take my family around. If they can see an improvement in services and more accessibility to those services, that starts to build trust. And that's a very like positive reinforcement mechanism, right? Where you think in the past, you know, if you come from a situation of saying, I would never take that because it will just disrupt everything in my life. Once things start to get better, people think, okay, you know, I'm confident taking that route on the bus or actually I'm, you know, my commute's good on the train. I'm happy doing that. I trust that it works for me. It's, you know, it's reliable. It doesn't, it's not a source of stress in my life. It's something that I can just take, like I can count on as going to work. And then you can build from that. And that's really important to, you know, like it's important not to lose sight of like, how are people making their decisions? And again, as I said at the start, like how does this relate to just the daily experience of someone who lives in the city and just wants to get around and not have that be this like huge, overwhelming, stressful thing that they're grappling with on a day-to-day basis. One of the ideas I like to think about a lot in economics is elasticity and how responsive people are to a change in price. Now, fuel is um, notoriously inelastic in that we're all locked into our cars and when the price goes over three bucks a bit, three bucks, I was going to say three bucks a barrel, <laughs> if only it was three bucks a barrel, three dollars a litre, uh, then, you know, oh, we've got no real choice because this is all we've got and therefore I'm going to um, buy just as much petrol as I did before and but just pay a lot more for it. So a very inelastic uh, response to a price change for petrol. How elastic is the, are the responses to um, price falls or complete removals uh, in public transport? Um, so there is a lot of research on this and I mean, you explained that the concept really well, but the research is often asking, you know, if again, get back to the, the earlier premise I set up, if we've got some money to spend and we want to get sort of the most out of it in terms of mochi, that's not the only thing where you might be concerned about, but if, if that's the thing you're going for, then there is research saying, okay, should we, what's the benefit of introducing an integrated ticketing system? So it's easy for people to jump between modes or move across the metropolitan area, or what's the benefit of increasing frequencies or what's the benefit of, of go, uh, going fare free? Um, I think the, again, I, I don't have those numbers to hand, um, but that research does exist. But one thing which I think is really important to take from that is that 
in the context of like having these big challenges around climate change, a recognition that living costs are increasing um, a lot and it's really hitting people in terms of their household budgets um, and this huge need to you know make it possible to travel in different ways, but also to do it in a way that's fair and that's as affordable as possible. Getting, I, I guess, like getting caught up in debates over, you know, this, this measure is slightly more beneficial than that measure. I guess my approach is that if you're in this situation, we should be putting everything to Towards it. If we know that going fear-free increases ridership, that should be, and again, it shows that it can be quite significant, that's important. If we also know that, and I think I mentioned it a little in the report, but alongside this, it, like really careful thinking is needed to say, okay, we're not only going to go fear-free, but if we're really concerned about accessibility and people's ability to, to get again, the bus or the train, um, a lot of attention should be going to things like what are the bus frequencies? Like, do we have a bus route coverage that's, you know, coverage of bus routes or, or rail lines that's actually adequate? And can we increase those frequencies? I use frequency because it's an example of something that can actually be a bit of a deal breaker for someone if they think, okay, I need to get to work by this time. I need to get from A to, to, to B. If the frequency's off, that's the kind of thing that can make you think like, well, like, that would make my commute an hour and a half if I have to leave really early or actually I can't even get a frequency that gets me there on time. So again, back to this point of elasticity, going fear free does have a big uptake, but it should be done in conjunction with other things. And I would really encourage not to get bogged down in these debates saying we need to debate all the individual options as if we only have the ability to do one sort of policy change or, you know, one change to the services at, at the time. That's not how it works. You know, in Auckland, like every city, you, you can read the transport plan. They've got ongoing upgrades and ongoing improvements. So I think the question is more not in saying let's sort of um, like quibble over the like respective contribution of each of them, but actually how many of these can we bring together to get the most, um, you know, because actually the, like the combined impact um, that gets you the big results. And that was another key finding that came out when I talked to, to the other cities. They said um, they all had slightly different approaches in how they did it. Some of them went fair free. And then once they got an increased ridership, then they really started improving the services. Some did it a little bit beforehand or around the same time. But they all said it makes no sense to do to do one without the other, because we all know, and again, people know this if they take public transport or they just need to get around, and transport planners know this, that if you want to make it viable, you need to make it affordable for people, and getting as close to free is the best way to, to make that you know, as affordable as possible for everyone, but you also need to make it workable. If you've got a really poor quality and frequent system, making it free and not doing anything else is, is not the right way to do it. So for the last 30 years or so, our um, transport funding system has really been about collecting taxes from petrol and diesel and using a little bit of those taxes to fund the subsidies for public transport, buses and trains, particularly in the big cities, but to be frank, not much. And the assumption underlying that was that buses and trains were a dying breed and we'd all be in our cars eventually, and the real aim of any public policy is to ensure that the roads are great and we can all jump in our own cars and listen to our own music in our own cars and have the heater on and not have to deal with other ugly people and painful people, um, and we'll only have our beautiful children and families with us. <laughs> uh, and um, that was the glorious future as we ripped up the tram lines. But can New Zealand move towards a mode-shifted future with the sort of funding system that we have at the moment, uh, which doesn't have any congestion charges? and which doesn't use 
funds from other parts of the government, which have effectively created a what they call hypothecated, you know, closed fund where taxes go in and their money for maintenance and public transport goes out. Can can the system thrive and grow with this current way in which we fund public transport? So I think there's a couple of things I can say to that. Um, the first is that it's worth acknowledging, like the system at the moment, it's an effective way, you know, with the, the heavy dependence on, on traveling by car, the system is very good at the moment at raising a lot of money, right? So at the moment, there's there's a lot of money in that budget. There's a lot of debates over the proportion of what should be spent on roads, on public transport, walking and cycling, etc. At the moment, it's raising a lot of money. Um, something that uh, I, I don't think has been introduced a lot in the debates, and it's maybe a sort of more of a far-sighted issue, but I think it's important is that that uh, current funding system, as there's a, a transition to electric vehicles. Um, which in New Zealand, like in many other countries, is a part of the plan to to, uh, to mitigate and, and respond to climate change. It's inevitable that that funding system will need to be looked at again, right? Because the like if the, if the, the taxes on the fuel, if we're not if we're using EVs, that's going to erode the amount of tax that's collected quite significantly. And so I think so. It's doubly unsustainable. It's well, I, I think it sort of shows us that actually inevitably the moment's going to come where we're going to to rethink this. Um, and again, in a lot of places, that raises questions around road price road pricing or congestion charging or other ways of uh, of, of uh, funding uh, your, your public transport. Um, so I guess that's the first thing that sort of creates the need of like, we're going to have to make this decision saying we're just going to stick with the status quo, don't change it. It's not really going to be an option. Maybe it's an option this year or in the next five years, but beyond that, where it's going to, you know, that revenue base is the sort of technical term that will be eroded because as people shift to EVs, they'll just stop paying tax, the, you know, the, the fuel duty that, that, that goes towards that. So this big task we have of adjusting to um, climate change, getting to net zero, in theory, actually could end up punishing and hurting those who can least afford it. Because the obvious solution to this problem, any economist will just throw a price on it and increase the price until the pips squeak. And increasing prices for petrol and diesel will do it eventually. But in the meantime, the people who rely on it most, and they are often those on lower incomes who are bouncing around town, taking kids to school and going to two jobs and out driving an old um, clapped out car that's not very efficient and probably belching black smoke. They are the ones who would have to effectively pay the highest price relative to their uh, lifestyles and their incomes um, versus the Ferrari driving radio personality who probably spends a relatively small proportion of their income on the fuel at least. Maybe not the Ferrari, but the fuel at least. And the risk here is that we have an unjust transition. How important are fee affairs free policies and uh, subsidised, you know, um, scooters and bikes and um, various forms of uh, public transport? How important is that in creating a just transition? Uh, yeah, really good point. Uh, and, and I absolutely agree. There's a huge risk if that. You know, particularly if there's a, a strong dependence on, like, I understand prices matter. We all know this right now. Prices are going up and it's like, you know, we, it creates problems and it changes our behavior. That's true. But if price is used as the only mechanism, um, and I think actually, like, just to kind of touch on your point, you, it's so, you're so right that in a system where a lot of people realistically to do like tr difficult trips or to, you know, they often talk about sort of, uh, 
how to put it, you know, the way that a lot of people travel, it's not just I'm leaving home and I'm going to work and I stay there all day. It's things like I'm dropping off children, then I'm going to do the groceries, then I need to go here, then I need to go there. If you can only realistically do that in a car, then that sort of by default, like, and puts a price on things. Like if you can do that by public transport and that can be done in a way that's like centrally, uh, you know, centrally funded. And basically instead of you buying your own car, operating your own car, paying for the fuel to drive that around, if a bus can be provided where you don't need to worry about putting fuel in the bus. You don't need to be worried about getting a new registration. You don't need to worry where it parks. You just need to trust that it's going to turn up at the right time to get you from, from A to B. Um, and, and, and similar with a train. Um, so the just transition is really important. Um, as a, as a, like, it's, it's, you, you touched on it well, but like it just comes back to fairness of saying, if we need to change this as a society, climate change is a really big one, but it's not the first time that, you know, uh, societies have come across issues where you think, okay, there needs to be a change in how we consume resources, how we travel, how we, you know, how we sort of live together. So, you know, there are earlier precedents for this, but there is a huge risk that if it's not done in a way that thinks really carefully, like who actually bears the, the burden of this, as you say, then that's, uh, you know, there's a risk that that, that doubles down on, on inequalities and creates just what is fundamentally a very unfair situation for people who, who don't have the alternative. And I think in the context of fears free, in that situation where you think, okay, we're going to have to change, we do need this transition, we're really concerned about the, the distributional impacts so if that's going to worsen inequality by putting a big burden on some people. That's where putting in place, again, good public services that provide the service that make it possible to get around without needing, again, to buy a car, to put upgrade, you know, to keep the warrant of fitness up to date, to pay the registration, to park it, all of those things. If you can take those costs off, uh, you know, off, off people's um, household budget, that's a huge way, but you still allow them to get around. That's a really important way to make sure that that transition is, uh, is it's just, and I, again, I understand like, some cities were built. I mean, it's sort of ironic in Auckland, like it was sort of built around public transport, but then the public transport came out and, and now it's, um, it is a big place. And a lot of questions come up around like, look, you know, like this is a big city. People have, you know, some people's commutes or the routes they have to travel are very difficult. Um, and that doesn't, uh, obviously compared to a very dense city, um, compared to, I say, you know, Hong Kong, which is the sort of a, a huge difference, uh, to Auckland. The, the question of like, okay, how can you provide good services that allow people to get around? I'm not, like glossing over that and pretending that that's just easy to do. But I say it is possible. And one thing I'd really stress, and this is a key learning from not only the cities in this report, but in other places, is that bus services allow you to provide regular, you know, that you don't need to build a track for a bus. It just can, it can use the road, the occasional bus lane or a bit of priority really helps. It's flexible. So you can decide to have a bus route and you don't have to wait 20 years or 10 years for it to be built or to have all these debates over how you fund it. It can be there relatively quickly um, and it can cover a lot of routes. And even in, uh, you know, London, um, which is, has a huge density of rail infrastructure, is still the bus network that carries more people and does what I would say is like most of the heavy lifting in terms of moving people around. So in that context where you're thinking, oh gosh, how can we how could we expand our transport system in a public transport in a way that can really, you know, boost like the accessibility and get out of these situations where people say, look, like if I'm lucky enough to, you know, live by that rail station and work in the city, okay, I can commute, but the rest of the time it's difficult. It is actually possible to provide really good bus services in particular, again, because they're flexible, they're quick, they're very cost effective, and it's a really efficient way to move people around. And that can give you kind of, again, like a, a big sort of uptick in the accessibility. Of course, rail 
scale and high capacity infrastructure absolutely has a place, but because that takes a long time and Auckland, like a lot of cities, is sort of staring down these uh, these targets around climate change thinking we don't, like we, we simply don't have the time. But I guess I want to stress there are other ways to to, to boost the, the the coverage of your um, of your public transport by using buses because they are so, are so much more flexible. Associate Professor uh, Jen MacArthur there from University College London. Jen, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi. Te ai he butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.